Hello, Rebels. Today I talk about D-Day. It's the 75th anniversary. You know, there's this crazy clip in there of uh, Julie Payette, the Governor General. Uh, I won't tell you what she says. I'll let you hear it for yourself. It's just crazy. Um, I want to tell you, but I'll just let you hear it. Uh, before I uh, get out of the way, can I invite you to become a premium subscriber of The Rebel? You get access to the video version of this podcast. You got to see Julie Payette. She's dressed up with all her medals, talking to 90-year-old veterans and sneering at them and lecturing them. Say, Come on, be like me. It's quite something to see the video. And you get access to the video by being a premium subscriber. You also get access to Sheila Gunn-Reed's weekly show and David Menzies weekly show. And David's hilarious. It's eight bucks a month, which is not nothing, but it's not that much, is it? It's like half a Starbucks Frappuccino these days. Go to the rebel.media slash shows. Eight bucks a month. I'd be grateful. All right. Here's my D-Day show. You are listening to a Rebel Media podcast. Tonight, it's the 75th anniversary of D-Day. What would those men say about us now? It's June 6th, and you're watching the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. D-Day was on June 6th, 1944, the greatest invasion in history when the Allies landed in Normandy, the coast of France, to drive Hitler's army out and to begin the liberation of Europe from the West, as the Soviet Red Army was doing from the East. Donald Trump was in Normandy representing America on this anniversary, and Justin Trudeau was there too, biting his tongue, no doubt, representing Canada. All that toxic masculinity, all that male privilege, all those guns. He managed to keep his mouth shut for the most part, which is the best we can hope for. Maybe while he's there learning about the Nazis, he'll reconsider calling Canada a country of genociders, as he did this past week. He's a liar, of course, a defamer. We were a country that helped stop the great genocide, the Holocaust. Canada had our own invasion beach on Normandy to liberate Europe. Our beach was called Juno Beach. We were punching well above our weight. Did you know that when the Second World War ended, Canada had one of the largest navies in the world. I've heard it called the third largest or the fifth largest, one of the largest air forces in the world. That's what we were during the greatest generation. That's not to say Canada didn't embarrass ourselves over there today. Julie Payette, the former astronaut, space cadet, who has become a bizarre and reclusive governor general, she had this to say. Why? Because conflict is the result of our collective failure. It is when we fail to get along. It is when somewhere, somehow, we didn't find a place where we can agree. But I flew with Germans, Japanese, Belgium, people from the United States, people from Russia, people from Canada. And we work together in space, and it's not the only place where we work together. We work together in space for the advancement of knowledge and to prepare ourselves for the future together. If we can do it there, we can do it anywhere. 
That's not just stupid. We expect stupid from our politicians these days. That's immoral. That's insulting. Imagine telling surviving soldiers, the few veterans still with us, obviously, in their 90s, that it was collective failure. The, the Second World War was a failure on our part, too, that there was no right and wrong. We, we just didn't all get along. You know, we didn't meet Hitler in the middle. What, what did she say? We didn't see eye to eye with him. We didn't work with Hitler to advance our common interests. I mean, if they had just put Hitler and Churchill in a space station together, they could have worked it all out, right? I mean, look, she was an astronaut working with other astronauts, so she could do it. Like Trudeau, she's always the hero in her own stories. She couldn't just shut up about herself and praise the veterans. I mean, come on, you lazy, small-minded veterans. If Julie Payette can work with elite astronauts for a few days in space, surely you stupid vets could have done better. I mean, surely you could have worked it out. Met Hitler in the middle. You were, you were a failure. I think that's what she said. I think that was really her message. At first I thought, I wonder if anyone vetted those insane remarks. But then I thought, of course, they had been, if they had been vetted, that would have 100% fit with Trudeau's communication strategy. He really doesn't have much time for soldiers, let alone veterans, and, and he comes by it naturally. Pierre Trudeau obviously refused to serve in the Second World War. Uh, he was born in 1919, which means he would have been 20 when the war started, 26 when it ended. That's exactly military age, by the way. More than one million Canadians did serve in uniform in that war. And back then, our total national population was only about 11 million. So 10% of Can Canadians served in, in uniform. 42,000 Canadians were killed. 55,000 were wounded. It was such a total national effort. It was so disproportionate. Every single home in the country had some commitment to the war, either because someone from that household was serving as a soldier or working in a factory or on a farm to the war effort. And this one child of privilege, Pierre Trudeau of military age, was roaring around Montreal on a motorcycle wearing a German helmet. Did you know that's what he did instead of fight? So you know where Justin Trudeau gets it from. Speaking of Justin Trudeau, here's a story from just yesterday. Homeless veteran living in her van draws attention to national crisis. Let me read a little bit. During a week when world leaders gather on the shores of France to recognize the sacrifice of D-Day, many veterans here at home are undertaking a, special, a desperate struggle. They are former soldiers with no place to live. It's an urgent national problem. I'll read a little more. Diane Claveau is 56 years old, educated and military trained. She is also homeless, living in her van in the parking lot of a big box store on the list for subsidized housing and on the hunt for a job. I'm just going to read one more line to you. According to recent statistics, Claveau is one of an estimated 3,000 to 5,000 veterans across Canada who are homeless. It's a crisis, and many organizations say it's a national disgrace. I would say this is one of the big shames of Canada, says Susan Lay, the executive director of Multi-Faith Housing Initiative. We have failed these people. Well, look, as Trudeau would say, I mean, she's just asking for more than we can give. I mean, if she were smart, duh. She'd go to the United States and just come across the border illegally, like close to 100,000 fake refugees have done. Look, the RCMP will carry their badge for them. File some bogus human rights complaint, refugee application, get free housing, get free everything. Here in Toronto, the government has literally rented out the entire Radisson Toronto East Hotel, just giving free hotel rooms, plus, of course, free housekeeping services, because why not? God forbid they should have to make their own beds. To, just to fake foreign scammers. But Diane Claveau, 
a veteran? Yuck. She's probably just some alt-right white supremacist Islamophobe. I mean, she obviously likes guns if she was in the army. Yuck, right? What a world we're in. It's a strange world. For some reason, Angela Merkel was at the D-Day ceremonies too, standing with the Allies. I'm not sure what to make of that. I mean, I like Germany and Germans well enough. Uh, and maybe it's a sign of healing to have them there. Um, so I'd say thumb, thumbs up, I guess. Um, and I know everybody is still hunting for, for Russian collusion in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, even though Robert Mueller's exhaustive two-year investigation found no evidence of it. And obviously the Russians weren't part of D-Day. They were invading Germany from the east. But it is a fact that they were a critical factor in the defeat of Hitler. I despise Stalin as much as I despise Hitler. Communism actually killed more people in the 20th century than Nazism did. Of course, Nazism came for the Jews, so I have a special hate for Hitler, but Stalin was as bad, and there are reasons to be wary of Putin today, but it is a fact that Russia pushed more young men into the meat grinder of the Second World War than all other countries combined. 10 million war dead. I'm just talking about those in uniform. I'm not counting innumerable civilians in leveled cities like Stalingrad. Nearly three quarters of Soviet boys born in 1923 did not live to survive to 1946. Can you imagine that? If you were born in 1923 in the Soviet Union, if you were a male, three quarters of you would be dead before you turned 23. That's the price they paid. But here's my question. What would our own Canadian war dead, the 42,000 of them, what would they say about us today? What would they say about our disgracing and denial of our history? What would they say about us tearing down Statues of Sir John A. Macdonald. What would they say about just this week? The government, giddy to censor. Nazi style. Yeah, sorry, it's Nazi style. Any wrong think on the internet. What would they say about our disgraceful treatment of our Canadian veterans, but our Prime Minister's love affair with convicted terrorists like Omar Khadr, seen here receiving a hero's welcome on Trudeau's CBC State Broadcast. Look at that. They have the disco lights on. They have bubbly wine, applause. Look at him. He's a star. I love you. Smiling. What would our veterans say about us now if they saw us? But it's not just Trudeau. It's everything. It's the media, as we just saw. It's the schools. It's the culture, not just anti-war and not just anti-soldier, but positively supportive of our enemies. Just, just as I wrote this uh, for today, I thought, I bet that literally most Canadians under the age of 40 have no idea about D-Day or even World War II. Don't laugh. We asked the other day a dozen Canadians who our first prime minister was while holding up a $10 bill with a picture of him on it. They had no idea. Who is the first prime minister of Canada? Uh, I'm not sure. $10, you can figure it out. I'm not sure. No idea? No idea. Sorry. Who was the first prime minister of Canada? Um, Give me ten bucks if you can figure it out. Oh my god. Um. Oh my god, I, I don't know. Oh my god. <laughs> this is pathetic. I don't think I can. You don't. You don't know? N no idea. No, can't. Who was Canada's first prime minister? Yeah, that went on for quite a while.
If they don't know who our first prime minister was, they surely don't know who the Fuhrer of Germany was in the Second World War. And I've asked our team to go out and do streeters today in Toronto to prove me wrong, just to ask man on the street, when was World War II? Whose side were we on? Who, who won World War II? David's out there today. I'll, I'll show you the video when he comes back. I'm not optimistic. Those are my thoughts today. I, I feels a bit like it feels for me every year on Remembrance Day. I just don't believe the folks who once a year pretend they care about our troops, or today, those who pretend they care about our liberties fought for by those troops 75 years ago, they just don't. I think Donald Trump is a genuine exception. I think the rest of the so-called leaders in Normandy today, I think they really couldn't care less. Stay with us for a moment. Welcome back. Let me show you a video that was put out by the Foreign Office of the United Kingdom. This is a real government allegedly run by a conservative party. Check out this video that they put online yesterday. Climate change is probably the greatest threat we face this century. It's affecting the poorest and most vulnerable countries already in a massive way, but it will affect all of us across the world. We're seeing increasing extreme weather, uh, we're seeing droughts, floods, storms, sea rise, but the most terrifying thing is that the projection of just how much worse this will get if we don't reduce emissions rapidly. The second big worry is the way that all of these impacts will all start to multiply and reinforce each other, and we face huge problems with our food security, with forced migration, and with in increased conflict and many other aspects of unmanaged climate change. There you have it. Theresa May's government says the greatest threat of this century is global warming. It's more than the threat of terrorism or war. Um, and they say this on the eve, they said this on the eve of D-Day. Um, maybe they think global warming is a worse peril than, of course, the Nazi menace and uh, World War II. I bet they would say they do. Well, my favorite response to this was just two letters long. And it came from our friend Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, who has since then gone on to become what he calls the sensible environmentalist. And he says simply, BS. Well, Patrick Moore joins us now via Skype. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you again. Um, there's a hundred things you could say in response to that claim by the UK, but I think BS sums it up with about as much dignity as they deserve. That's my thoughts. Ezra, these people are living in a complete fantasy world, and the Conservatives in Britain have gone bonkers. I mean, they've declared a climate emergency when, like, are people fleeing from their homes in panic at this present moment? No, there is no climate emergency, and there isn't going to be a climate emergency, but there will be extreme weather, as there always has been uh, since, like, before the time of Christ. So we, we've, we're, we've been in extreme weather in this world since the beginning of the world. I mean, it was a lot worse back in the days when volcanoes were erupting every five minutes, when the Earth was much hotter 
than it is now. But these people started out with global warming. The idea being that carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels would cause the earth to heat up and make it intolerable for life. Well, that didn't happen. So they changed it to climate change. Now it could be anything, cooling, warming, floods, drought, tornadoes, hurricanes, you name it. But if you said, well, it was awfully cold last winter, they would say, oh no, that's just weather. Hmm. Don't confuse the climate with weather. Hmm. What do they talk about now? All they talk about is extreme weather because they've lost the plot on the whole rest of it. And even the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is supposed to be the United Nations foremost body on the whole subject of climate change, says there are no trends in extreme weather, not in hurricanes, not in tornadoes, not in drought, not in floods, to name a few. So if the IPCC says that, and the crazies are just inventing the idea that the extreme weather is getting worse, then they are in their own little fantasy world bubble. There is no actual hard data to indicate that any extreme weather events are increasing. Now it becomes a doomsday prediction. In other words, even if extreme weather isn't increasing now, it most certainly will begin to increase in the future, and it becomes like any other doomsday prediction. Unprovable, for one thing, because it hasn't happened yet. And more than likely, not true, because how many doomsday predictions have actually come true? Yeah. I count zero. Yeah. Well, um, there was an implication in that video from the UK that if we do some, if we make some political choice, the weather will change. Uh, it, it wasn't very practical in Canada. Uh, they're all saying if we had a carbon tax, there wouldn't be forest fires. I think generally politicians don't go full doomsday. They don't say, they don't make the absolute direct link between if you pay this tax, there will no longer be cold winters, hot summers, hurricanes, tornadoes, forest fires. In Canada, they've been dipping their toe into that, actually implying that if we don't have a carbon tax, we'll have bad weather. If we do have a carbon tax, there won't be bad weather, as if it's an on-off switch. But maybe you can tell me this, Patrick, is there any, is there any science from the UN IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that suggests that if we actually do all these policy prescriptions, if we actually do bring in carbon taxes and even ban cars, that's not actually gonna change the global climate. I mean, even the activists at the UN don't say put in a tax, change the climate, do they? Well, yes, they're implying that. They're saying if we quit using fossil fuels, everything will be fine, except for the fact that at least 80% of the global population will be dead. And, you know, I, it makes me laugh when people say in the States, like when the, the Green New Deal came out, they said, oh no, that'll cost 3 million jobs. No, it won't. It'll cost 200 million lives. How do they think they're going to get the food into the cities without trucks? Mm -hmm. And how do they think they're going to grow the food without tractors run on oil? They're going to have battery-powered tractors and battery-powered 40-ton trucks delivering food into the city every day. Thousands of trucks, like into New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. How do they think the food gets to the supermarkets? So just that one point. If they stopped fossil fuels today, people would begin to die 
in the centers of the cities and it would go outward towards the edge. As people captured any food that was trying to get into the city, they'd kill the people who were bringing the food into the city so they could have the food. I mean, it's very clear. This would be a global catastrophe of absolutely ridiculously stupid proportions. And no one would wish this on the human race. Yeah. It would be a lot better to get one degree warmer, I assure you of, of that. And then the other factor is, if we stopped using fossil fuels overnight, there wouldn't be a tree left on this planet within a few years, because that would be the only fuel left that you could use to heat your home and all the other things we do with energy. Uh, it, it, it is so ridiculous that it isn't really worth talking about, and we have to ignore these people. Right. We have to ignore these people, and we have to build pipelines, and we have to get the oil from Alberta to eastern Canada, where, where for some reason up till now they seem to think it's better to bring it from Nigeria, Venezuela, and Saudi Arabia, hmm. all with stellar human rights records. You know, I mean, can you believe that they think Alberta oil is somehow worse than oil from those three countries? I, I've, I never heard of anything so crazy. Yeah. And they use the word dirty. Our oil is dirty. Where do they think we grow all our food? In dirt. Mm -hmm. Dirt is dirty. But as in dirty, rotten scoundrel, it's a swear word. Right. So the word dirty is being used not to describe that it's dirty as in dirt on your pants. They're talking about dirty as in dirty, rotten scoundrel. In other words, uh, somehow corrupt or evil, horrible, a word like that. Mm. And so they're just completely confusing everybody by using these words. And now, of course, it's not a climate change anymore. It's a climate crisis. It's mm -hmm. a climate catastrophe. It's climate disruption. It's a climate emergency. And it is an existential threat to the existence of mankind. And David Suzuki is talking about human extinction yeah. when the population is larger than it ever has been in the history of the human species. Yeah. You know, you, you provide a good reality check there on what would actually happen if we actually followed the prescription of, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the New York Congresswoman who talks about the Green New Deal. But can I, I mean, that was an excellent answer um, and uh, a good reminder of what reality is like, how big cities and our industrial society is based on fossil fuel. The, the size of the cities we have would be impossible without oil and gas. But I wanna try again on my earlier question, not, just because I, I, I actually seem to recall that the UN's best case scenario, if we implemented all of their advice, the globe would still very, very slowly, very gently warm anyways, because it has been very slowly, very gently warming for thousands of years as we emerge out of the last great ice age. So the earth, yes, it is very slowly, very gradually warming as it, thank goodness it has, because. You know, I'd be under a, a mile of, of ice if it was as it was 15,000 years ago. So I, I guess what I'm saying is even if we did do the Green New Deal, isn't the general trend for very slight warming anyways? Am I wrong on my science there? You're not wrong, Ezra. The general trend since about 1700 has been a slight warming uh, of about 1.1 degrees Celsius globally which is insignificant compared to the changes that have occurred in Earth's past while life flourished. Like the last ice age was 350 million years ago. 
This one, which started 2.5 million years ago, may last another 80 million years. We just happen to be lucky to be in an interglacial period now where it's a few degrees warmer than it was when we had two miles of ice over Toronto and three kilometers of ice over Montreal. So yes, this is a fortunate time and it has been fortunately since the little ice age ended 300 years ago, been warming slightly. But the UN and all of these so-called climate scientists are basing their entire theory on carbon dioxide as if that is the only control knob of global temperature. And they are wrong because the sun is actually the main controller of global temperature. And that is why the ice ages have come and gone. The glaciations have come and gone. We don't really know why the earth plunged into a a global ice age 5 million years ago. And then they say 2.5 million, but it really started getting really cold about 5 million years ago. And that's when the Arctic islands froze up in Canada. They used to be forested with camels in them Hmm. 5 million years ago. And there's pictures of it. You can look it up on the internet. So we are living in one of the coldest periods in the history of the earth now. We are also living in one of the lowest carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere in the history of the earth. Even with us putting it back up to 400 ppm, it's still lower than it has been through almost the entire earth's history. So that's the, those are the facts. Yeah. And I, I was shocked to learn not, that, our, that our Arctic used to have forests, and in fact, you can still see remnants, the petrified forests. It's, it's unbelievable because it's uninhabitable up there right now. Permafrost, it's permanently frozen 18 inches below the surface. Nothing grows. It, I think people are stunned to learn that there were once mighty forests up there. Well, here I am, Ezra, in Comox on Vancouver Island, just a little more than halfway to the North Pole from the equator, and the mountains here are still covered in snow on top, and it's nearly the June solstice, nearly the summer. So we are on a cold planet compared to what it's been all through the past. But the really interesting thing is that Valentina Zarkova, a Ukrainian scientist, in about, she's about 70, She's now in Britain at a university, Northumbria. And she has a hypothesis which is now becoming widely understood within the climate change community that the sun's magnetosphere, not the the light from the sun, we think the main effect of the sun is the heat from the light that hits the earth, but actually the sun also has a magnetic dynamo inside it, a magnetic field around it. And next year, we enter into a grand global minimum, a grand solar minimum, sorry, where the sun will basically go to sleep in terms of its magnetosphere. And this is now understood very clearly. They can model it, and it seems to coincide very neatly with the Roman warm period, the medieval warm period, and the modern warm period, and the cold periods that intervene between them. So we're going to see very quickly now, beginning next year, and I think the last two winters have been a bit of a harbinger of what's to come. If the Earth starts to cool to a significant extent over the next five years, it's going to blow this whole CO2 thing out of the water, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to get colder, because the Earth would be a better place, especially the Canadian Earth Mm -hmm. would be a better place if it was a bit warmer and we could grow food a little further north than only a couple of hundred miles from the U.S. border. Mm -hmm. But 
we may be entering a cooling period now based on this magnetosphere hypothesis, which I don't ever predict the future because I know I don't have a crystal ball, that it is a mythical object and the climate is a very complex thing. But this is a very compelling theory that has been put forward and is now being studied by people all around the world. The Russians have always thought the sun was the main driver of climate change. And uh, Valentina Zarkova's hypothesis is now beginning to bear that fact out. All right, well, I'll have to read up on Valentina Zarkova. I have not heard that name before, but I appreciate the information. I got to tell you, though, as we said at the beginning of our conversation, um, climate crisis, climate breakdown, climate catastrophe, all the new language of the left, that will accommodate the cooling that this magnetic theory suggests. So if it does indeed cool the earth over the years ahead, they will just roll out that part of their theory and say, you see, we still need taxes and regulations because like we said, it's climate chaos, now it's cold again. I think that these people have an unfalsifiable a cosmic theory that no matter what happens, the answer is always the same. Give us more money, give us more power. And although I think your prediction may, your, your, your hypothesis may well come true, I don't think it's going to stop the, the hucksters on the other side. No, I, I, I actually believe it will. They will be marginalized to the extreme because the whole climate warming thing is based on carbon dioxide and fossil fuels. There's no way there is any postulate that could make fossil fuels cause global cooling. Hmm. Simply impossible. And so the real scientists will recognize that and will recognize that if the earth is cooling with ever increasing CO2 emissions, because they will continue to increase into the future. I've, I mean, I made a hundred thousand US dollar bet after the Paris Accord was signed in 2015 that CO2 emissions would be higher in 2025 than they were in 2015, and not one warmest believer in Paris would take my bet. Hmm. In other words, they don't believe their own garbage. Yeah. They don't believe what they are actually saying is true, that Paris will actually accomplish anything, mm -hmm. and it won't, and that's why Canada should pull out of it, and there's only one political leader in this country who says he will pull out of it, but uh, thankfully, at least we have the conservatives now saying they'll build a national energy corridor mm -hmm. and that maybe that means energy east and maybe that means instead of buying oil from Venezuela, Nigeria and Saudi Arabia, the main population of our country can be using Canadian oil. Mm -hmm. The fact that Ontario and Quebec reject Alberta oil is the reason why a large majority of Albertans favor separation mm -hmm. if this doesn't get resolved properly very soon. Mm -hmm. and. I would support that too. I've been a Western alienated person all my life, knowing that Ontario and Quebec, if they agree on something, makes the rest of us chop liver. Someone said it very succinctly recently, Canada is a road from Ottawa to Montreal and back again. And that is about the description of this country at this point, and that's got to be resolved somehow. Wow. Well, it's so great to catch up with you. Not only uh, do I learn science, but I get a good dose of uh real politics from you too. It's great to see you again. Before we let you go, uh, Dr. Moore, is there anything you'd like to tell us about? You have so many interesting projects on the go, whether it's books or of course your, your uh, golden rice uh, project. What are you working on these days that uh, I'm sure our viewers are curious. Tell us uh, what's on your radar screen personally. 
Well, the, the proudest thing that's happened to me lately and the most important for a long time is I've been a, a elected by the board of directors of the CO2 coalition to be their chairman. And so I'm now uh, the chairman of a group of scientists and engineers who are top in their field. I mean, w William Happer, for example, uh, Emeritus Physics Princeton, invented laser beams and is, is a top scientist in this world, is now in the White House working on the climate change issue to try to deal with this idea that is the greatest threat to the national security of the United States, which is complete balderdash. Like, people in the military are worried about six inches of sea level rise being a threat to, to themselves. Have they gone soft or what, you know? And so we, we have Richard Linson as well, who is one of the top, he's MIT Emeritus Physics, and they've made me their chairman. So they've recognized that my thinking on this subject both in terms of CO2 being a huge benefit to the world and the, the CO2 coalition's purpose is to educate people into the fact that CO2 is the main building block of all life on Earth. There is no evidence that it is causing abnormal warming of the Earth's climate. It may well be a little bit of the reason why the Earth has warmed, but there is no actual hard evidence of that. And even if it were a little bit of why the Earth is warmed, that would be positive in itself because the earth is cold now yeah. and CO2 is low. So more CO2 is a good thing for greening this planet, increasing our food crop production, increasing the growth of forests. And at the same time, I'm able to uh, work with, with a lot more uh, strength now because of the backing I have from this organization. So I'm, I'm really pleased with that role. And it, it's, it's, I'm proud that as a Canadian, I've been made the chair of a US-based, Washington DC-based science organization that is right in the center of this whole discussion and is willing to push back hard against this ridiculous notion that CO2 is some kind of poison or pollution when in fact it is the main food for all life on this planet, always has been, always will be. Well, listen, this has just been great. I. I've learned so many things in the last 10 minutes and I did not know about this CO2 coalition and you, let alone the fact that you're chairing it and the fact that it is headquartered in Washington DC is very important because of course the US economy and US policy on the environment is of course the most important in the world, especially frankly, it's probably more important to us here than, than Justin Trudeau's own views because America sets so much of the world's path. I'm delighted to learn all these things from you and let us not let so much time pass again before we talk again. It's great to catch up with you. Dr. Moore, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Ezra. It's always good to be with you in any time. Well, we'll take you up on that. That's wonderful. Thanks so much. Well, that's our friend, Dr. Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, who, of course, broke ranks with them over their junk science. And as you can see, he is a master of the science of many things in the uh, ecology, including global warming. We'll keep an eye on his CO2 coalition now that we are aware he's chairing it. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about the Liberal Party going from the party of loving Canada to the party of hating it. Robert writes, Trudeau has spent so much time pandering to a plethora of special interest groups who have various grievances against Canada that he has lost sight of what once made Canada great. Look, there's still a lot of greatness here, and, and we actually don't suffer from some of the same structural problems the United States has. Race is a perfect example. 
I'm not saying we're perfect at all, but we did not have slavery in Canada, and we didn't have the bloodiest war in American history it was not the Second World War, it was not the Vietnam War, it was not the Revolutionary War, it was their Civil War. We didn't go through that in Canada. More recently, on an economic point of view, we didn't go through the bank meltdown. No major Canadian bank fell like they did in the United States in 2008. We have so much good fortune in Canada. Of course, the best fortune we have is that the United States is our neighbor, giving us access to the world's biggest market and defending us on their dime. We, there's a lot of greatness here, but Trudeau, all he can see is the flaws, but it's not flaws in himself. He's, he's like that pickup artist. I don't know if you understood that illusion. These pickup artists are sort of oleaginous guys who say, here's how you get a date. Here's how you get a date. And a lot of it's BS, but if there's anything there, it's psychological manipulation. It's basically how to trick people, how to, how to manipulate people. I think Trudeau, that's how he thinks. He reminds me of other male feminists like Gian Gameshi that way. And I think he's looking at Canadian voters the same way he has looked at young women for 40 years. 30 years, which is how can I psychologically manipulate them? And with women, it's knock them down a bit uh, to reduce their confidence and then go in for the kill. And with Canadian voters, it's knock them down a bit to reduce their confidence and go in for the kill. Except for when you're nagging an entire population, you don't say, oh, who did your hair today? Or, oh, you didn't do your makeup, did you? It's, oh, boy. You guys are a little racist. You're a little genocide-ish. You guys are Islamophobic. I think you guys are sexist. I think you guys, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. It, it, he's a predator. Uh, I just hope people see through it, but I, I think that like some really lonely women, there are some really weak-willed voters out there who would say, yeah, he's right. That's my theory, what do you think? Stephen writes, if Trudeau gets reelected, what disasters will he unleash on Canada? Well, we can see a, a taste of them. He's really uh, back and loading a lot of his real plans. Uh, censorship seems to be a huge part of it, which I find really creepy. Um, but it, I'd say a saving grace is there was a general incompetence with Justin Trudeau's first term as uh, prime minister. He didn't have any people who were actual executives, and by that I mean who have executed things, who were doers. He, I mean, Stephen Harper, uh, some of his cabinet appointees usually had previous experience doing that same job on a provincial level. For example, I remember his first cabinet. Uh, Tony Clement had been a cabinet minister in the government of Mike Harris, so Stephen Harper could trust him to be a cabinet minister federally. Jim Flaherty, same thing. So he went with experience. He went with people who had run things before. Um, they may have had other flaws, but they were actually action-oriented. Can you name for me a single cabinet minister in Trudeau's cabinet who knew how to do anything other than, you know, make some PR statements and hand out some grants? If you look at the second raiders in his cabinet who, yeah, they check all the gender and ethnic boxes, check, 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 but they, none of them actually did anything before politics, I mean, Seamus O'Regan, he was on TV. Um, Miriam Monsef, I don't even know what she did other than be a fraudulent uh, refugee applicant. Um, his whole cry, I mean, Catherine McKenna, a shouty social justice warrior, UN lawyer. I can't think of anyone who gets less done. So I guess a saving grace is Justin Trudeau actually accomplished 
relatively few things just through incompetence. Is that the word? On my conversation with Joel Pollack, Paul writes, Trump supports Brexit, and I don't doubt he'll treat Canada well after October if Canadians are smart enough to turf the Liberals. I think you're right, and I think all Justin Trudeau had to do was be quiet. Um, as you and I have discussed before, if you look through Donald Trump's tweets going back almost a decade, it's clear what he cares about. China, Iran, I mean, that, in, in terms of foreign affairs, those are the two countries he tweeted about most. He thinks global warming's a scam. I don't know if you recall, I did a video once where I analyzed his tweets by subject. He has almost nothing to say about Canada in his, in his life. I think he thinks of Canada as sort of a, um, a half-brother or something, or uh, like a, an extended part of the United States, and not in a bad way. He just thinks, oh yeah, those Canadians, good guys. Maybe like he thinks of uh, Samoa or something. Uh, I, I think he um, never actually thought about us until Trudeau kept flick, 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 flicking his nose. That's not a good thing for a mouse to do to an elephant, don't you agree? My one worry, though, is that Andrew Scheer occasionally indulges in anti-Trump rhetoric just to get a local applause or something. I, there was some uh, internet-only TV ad that Andrew Scheer made recently where they started with a picture of Trump, not as promised, full of it, and the camera moves over from Trump to Trudeau, and the, uh, and the, the gimmick of it is, what a sham, what an idiot. Oh, haha, you thought we meant Trump, we actually mean Trudeau. I guess it's clever, but you're relying on an anti-Trump antipathy there. And you hear outbursts from the red side of the conservatives uh, uh, fairly often, bashing Trump. I think that conservatives have to shut up about that because they're just pandering. Frankly, Jason Kenney has this problem too. Uh, only Doug Ford seems to get it. If you want something from the United States, which all of us do, how about pretend to be polite? Um, as one wag put it, Justin Trudeau courageously insulted Mike Pence, the U.S. Vice President, when he came to visit Ottawa. Uh, he doesn't have those same words for an authoritarian regime like the Chinese dictators, who actually have two, Chinese, two hostages of ours. It's funny how Canadians, including conservatives, find it easy to bash Donald Trump words they wouldn't dare say to a China or an Iran. Those are my thoughts for today. I'd like to hear your thoughts on D-Day. And um, I expect that either tonight or tomorrow at the latest, we'll have the results of David's man-on-the-street interviews about D-Day. I am pessimistic about what folks will say. All right, folks, until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, keep fighting for freedom while you still have it. Mm -hmm.